0: You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. The context here is Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure, I hope you're aware of that at this point because we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount for, I don't know, six weeks. Uh, and, you know, you can look at Jesus' life through the Gospels. You can see there are several substantial ways that he had an impact that were very strategic on his part. There was his preaching ministry, which is what we've seen on the Sermon on the Mount, which is just the body of information that Jesus gave to people who were willing to listen, whether it was through teachings or parables. There was his discipleship ministry, which is bringing together people for personalized instruction in a deeper and more intimate way. And then there's his healing ministry, which is what we're going to talk about some, which was just serving and helping people. The preaching ministry that we've been studying is really just understanding from the mouth of God himself, how is it that we can get closer to God? How can we know God better? How can we love other people better? How can we live a fulfilled life? I mean, those are all the things that there was very practical wisdom uh, from the creator of the universe and the human soul on what it is that we were made for, what makes us tick, and what will actually make us fulfilled. When we look at Jesus' healing ministry, we see something else, we see something in the character and the nature and the heart of God. God cares about hurting people. He does not like to see suffering, whether that's physical, emotional, psychological, that God moves towards people, that God is a good God, he loves us, and he doesn't like to see them suffer. He's compassionate towards people, even people who don't deserve it, even people who don't want it, even people that are hostile towards him. God's love for us is not conditional. And then another aspect that we see in the supernatural way that Jesus does healing is we see that it's a way of authenticating his message. And this is actually a fairly important part of Jesus's ministry. Jesus would say some pretty radical and pretty bold things. And his opponents would often say, well, who are you? What gives you the right to speak for God? And he would be like, see that person who can't walk? get up and walk. And it would be like, oh, okay, that's a good argument, right? Not one that most of us could probably make, but then most of us aren't claiming to be God in flesh, right? And so the fact that he was able to have this authority, this power over the physical world, which included weather, which included withered bodies, which included all these different things, was a way of giving assurance and evidence to the people who heard his teaching that he wasn't just like giving good ideas or like his thoughts, but that like God, the all-powerful creator God of the universe, was behind what Jesus was saying. So he finishes up the Sermon on the Mount, and and we read in chapter 8, verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. There's all kinds of things that, you know, are interesting to look at here. You know, one of the the big things is the power of Jesus over things like this. You know, there's a lot of charlatans and there's a lot of uh, televangelists and people who are claiming like, give me money and you'll get rich or give me money and your wounds will be healed and your illnesses and your cancer and all those things. But, you know, a lot of times these things are very subjective. Someone will say, you know, I'm having migraines and like no one knows that person. We don't know if they're having migraines. And the preacher lays their hands on and it's like, yes, you are healed, and they're like, oh, my God, my migraine's gone, and you're like, how do we know? How do we know? I, you know, drove by a church once, and there was a sign out front that said, woman healed of varicose veins, and I was just like, yeah, okay, but leprosy is in a different category altogether, Right? And it's not like he says, you are healed, and then the is still horribly disfigured and leprous, and then comes back five days later and says, it got better, right? It's actually like they are watching in front of them this person be healed. And so Jesus looks at him, and he says to him, tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest to present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He gets to rejoin society. See, leprosy in the ancient world was a terrible, horrible thing. It's a terrible, horrible thing today. But there's treatment. In the ancient world, it was one of the most horrifying diseases you could get. The word leprosy comes from the Greek word lepis, which means fish scales. Because when somebody has a severe case of leprosy, uh, it can begin, their skin can be their appendages can begin to rot off, uh, they can begin to, and it can, it can begin to bubble up and look like fish scales. And this is one of the most feared diseases in the ancient world. I mean, this was the kind of thing where someone would look at you and, dis, and just be like, God hates you. You must be under some kind of curse. What horrible thing have you done wrong that you now look like this? And it's contagious, or they believed it was. And so there was a great deal of concern, not a lot of medical understanding or knowledge. And so people that got leprosy, it was not something that could be hidden. It was on your skin. It was on your body. And there was no known cure. And they were treated very harshly. This is an extreme case of modern leprosy. I'm not showing you this to gross you out. I mean, it's difficult to look at. It's painful. But you can see why they say it's called lepsis, and they might say it looks like fish scales. But the thing that I want you to understand is this is what was coming at Jesus. This was a person whose life had been destroyed, who was cut off from family, friends, society... If you were a leper in ancient Middle East, you had to live outside the city walls. You were not allowed to be in contact with people. You were not allowed to be in the circulation of the population. Uh, If you touched somebody who had leprosy, that made you ritually unclean. And this leper, Jesus is, remember, he's outside the city. He's just come down from the Sermon on the Mount. And this leper comes out of the bushes somewhere and says, will you heal me? Now, this could have caused a great disturbance. That could have caused a riot. They could have thrown stones and tried to kill this person. Jesus could have been like, gross, you know, get away. All these things. But Jesus' response here is very important for us to understand because remember, when we're studying the life of Christ, we're looking at the character of God. What is God like? And it says, not only did Jesus heal him, but he touched him. This was not necessary, as we'll see in our studies tonight. Jesus was not required to touch someone in order to heal them. This is something that he chose to do. Somebody whose life had been destroyed, who had been abandoned and cast aside, and probably hadn't been touched physically by another human being in years Jesus moves towards him. He lays hands on him. And I think what we need to see here is the way that God cares. God doesn't just care about our spiritual suffering. He doesn't just care about our spiritual state. He cares about us, our lives, our relationships, our bodies. He cares about all of those things. He has compassion. And even though these mortal coils, they're temporary... Our experiences in this life are real, and God doesn't like to see pain. I think another thing that's key here is that we see in a very visceral way, no one is beyond Jesus's help. You know, this would have been a completely hopeless situation from the viewpoint of the society and the culture and the people that were connected here. This person was doomed beyond help, beyond the scope of medicine, beyond the scope of compassion for a lot of people. This was the worst thing that could happen to someone. They were so far gone. And for God, it's just a matter of faith. It's a matter of he is willing and he moves toward this person. And the only requirement here, the only condition put on this person, he doesn't say, I'll heal you if, when. I'll heal you but He says, I am willing. The man comes out in this wreck, and he says, if you're willing, God, I know you can heal me. And he says, I am willing. And I think it's important because I think a lot of us in life, start to feel like maybe God is against us. We start to feel like we've made some bad decisions. We start to feel a little bit embittered about the world. We start feeling embittered about the pains and the, the misfortunes that we've encountered. And we start to look at our lives and we start to say, God doesn't care. If God is even real, he must be some kind of sadistic bastard who doesn't care about the pain and suffering that I'm going through, let alone the suffering in the world. But here we see a great example of a person who's in need and all they need to do is turn to God and ask for help and they find that he is willing. We go on and we read in verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said, To those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. See, what marvels Jesus here is not the authority that the man has. He's not marveling at the fact that the man says go and people go, and the man says come and people come. He's marveling at this man who's a Gentile, who's not a Jewish person, who's a part of the occupying force of Israel, coming to him and asking him for help. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and west, recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. That's the kind of authority that Jesus Jesus wields. This man's servant is many miles away, paralyzed in his home and tormented. And Jesus speaks a word. I'm sure the centurion got home and he was like, you're better. And he's like, yeah. He's like, what time did it happen? That that sense of of wonderment about what God can do. So this Gentile, meaning non-Jewish, occupying soldier, why was the centurion there? He was there To express the authority of Rome and subjugate the Jewish people. He was an occupying force. He was a leader. He was a commander. And there would be no reason for any Jewish person to have anything but hostility and contempt for the centurion. But the centurion has something. He's from a different culture, he's from a different religion. He certainly had different politics. And yet he saw suffering. He saw that Jesus was healing people. And he went to Jesus. And he thought maybe, my, maybe he'll help me as well. Maybe the compassion of God extends even to the enemies of his people. And he did something quite interesting. It says that he humbled himself. He recognized that there was something greater at work, something that was beyond his understanding, beyond his capabilities. And even though, in a way, the centurion is in the dominant position, Jesus, wandering Jewish rabbi, the centurion probably could have killed Jesus if he wanted to and gotten away with it. There wouldn't have been a big kerfuffle about an itinerant preacher being killed by a Roman centurion. He might have gotten a slap on the wrist. I mean, he is in a lot of ways in the position of power politically over Jesus, but he recognizes the authority that Jesus has. He compares the authority and he says, listen, I know that you can do this if you wanna do it. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Now, this probably isn't just flattery. This is probably recognition and understanding of I'm a real bastard. I am hurting your people. I am here to seek the interest of my people at the expense of your people. Yet here I am, not ordering, not commanding, but asking you for help. And he's actually risking quite a lot in terms of his own respect and authority. You know, I'm sure, you know, there weren't other, I'm sure there were other. Romans around, maybe some men under his command. And to go to this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi of the people they were suppressing and occupying. And to humble yourself and say, I'm not even worthy to come to your house. Jesus might have been like, you're right, you Roman dog. How dare you even ask? And I think sometimes that's how we see God. I think we're afraid to go to God. We're afraid to ask him for our needs to be met. We're afraid to ask him for his help because we see him as sort of like an overgrown human being who's always pointing his finger at us with some kind of judgment, some kind of concern, some kind of declaration of what we need to do differently and how we need to change. But if Jesus truly is the Son of God that we're seeing in real time, that that is not who God is. Heck, Jesus knows that he's going to be put to death by Romans. He understands that the reason that he has come, the mission that he has, is to die for the sins of mankind, and that that's going to come at the hands of the prevailing authorities of the time. And yet he still wants to help this man, not just this man, but his servant. The centurion risked a lot in putting his faith in Jesus. He risked that Jesus could reject him. Jesus could seize on the opportunity to point out his shortcomings and his problems. He risked being rejected by Jesus, told no. He risked being rejected by the men who follow him. How dare you humble yourself before this Jewish person? We are the army of Rome, the power of Caesar, here to keep these people down. And he put all of that at risk because his friend was paralyzed and tormented. He recognized Jesus' authority. And this is what blows Jesus' mind. Right? Jesus sees this man willing to humble himself. To take that risk. And to have enough faith. I mean, he would have had to have been fairly convinced that this was worth trying. To even attempt such a thing that would bring potentially so much shame and ruin upon himself. And we see that this isn't about race. This is a Jewish man and a Roman man, but that there's something that unites them and connects them that's so much more powerful than the color of our skin, that's so much more powerful than the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the music we listen to. Those are all surfacy things. They are things that bring color and life and variety into the human condition, but there is something so much more important than any of those things. It's the underlying truth of the brotherhood of man. We are all the children of God. We are all created in the image of God, and we will mistreat each other. We will perpetrate injustice upon one another, but that doesn't change the fact that from God's perspective, we are family. Jesus could not have agreed, disagreed more with the politics of this man, with the career path and choice of this man, but this is not about politics. This is about suffering. This is about people in need. And what Jesus demonstrates here is how his followers should be willing to do those same things, to see and reach out toward people who are suffering with compassion and love regardless of our differences, regardless of the ideologies that separate us from the cultures that set us against one another. We're living in a time of tribalism, of extreme uh, Categorization where people are moving themselves into one extreme or the other, and it is terrifying. It is terrifying to see the willingness that people have to devalue one another. And the thing that sets us all on an even footing, the thing that brings us together, the thing that unites us is the power and love of God that He has determined that each and every one of us has as His creation. So a man that Jesus should hate asks for his help and does so in a respectful way filled with humility believing that Jesus can do this. And God responds. In chapter 9 verse 1 we see a third example Jesus getting into a boat crossed over the sea and came to his own city and they brought him a paralytic laying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this guy's a blasphemer. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man got up and went home when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. There was something in the way that he was working, something in the way that he was operating here. I mean, these were small towns, small villages. These people knew each other from childhood. You know, everybody knew everybody else. When they saw this paralytic, they knew that he had been paralyzed. He had been on his mat for years. Jesus shows up and he says two things. Your sins are forgiven which is actually the more risky of the two things that he said, according to this culture, and pick up your mat and walk, and the man did it. I think it's important when we read through this that the faith here that's attributed in each of these cases, right? Jesus is looking at the faith, the faith of the leper, the faith of the centurion. In this case, he says he saw their faith, and it wasn't, the faith of the paralytic man, it was the faith of the people who brought him to Jesus. That our faith, our willingness to try to get people in front of Jesus and connected with him, even sometimes when they are faithless, in our faith we can pray and we can connect and we can share the Bible and we can invite people out to Bible studies and find ways to help them connect to Jesus Christ. And God will move on the basis of our faith to help other people see the things that they need to see in order to find God. Now, of course, they're going to need to come to their own personal convictions and faith about those things, but God will move to help you reach your friends, to help you reach your family members and your coworkers and your neighbors. And so when he sees the power of the faith of the people who are carrying this paralyzed man, he says, of course I'm willing to help and your sins are forgiven. This is a really important nuance of the culture of what's happening here. You see, this is a Jewish culture, it's a very well-established religious culture based on the Old Testament, and in the clear teaching of Moses and the clear teachings of the rabbis, all the religious authorities of Jesus' day, all sin, all rebellion, all evil is against God, and only God can forgive sin. So for one person to say to another person, I forgive your sins, is a very clear, very cogent, very powerful declaration of being God. If you're like me and in college you took a Bible as lit class, you might have heard a professor say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Well, in lots of different ways, Jesus claims to be God. But none are more straightforward, and none are more powerful than a moment like this, where Jesus declares that he has the authority to forgive sins. And the scholars and the scribes that are among them at this time, they get the message loud and clear. I mean, to blaspheme in their context means to claim that you're God. And they're like, this guy's a maniac. He thinks he's God. We should We should take him to the authorities and he should be killed for having such an insane claim that he could be the living God dwelling among us. It's a bold claim to divinity that was completely understood within the cultural context in which he said it. To us it doesn't ring that way, but to them it clearly did. They're accusing him of blasphemy. And so what Jesus does, hearing, you know, oh, you think I'm a blasphemer. Well, how about this? Which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven? How can I prove to you that I have the authority to say that? Unless I also say, pick up your mat and walk. He's providing them with a powerful declaration of who he is, with a powerful demonstration of who he is. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 you guys didn't understand, I didn't mean it like that. I'm like a prophet, God told me to say that. Like God said, I should say your sins are forgiven. He says, no, I told the man his sins are forgiven because I have the authority to forgive sins. And if you wanna know whether or not I have the right and the ability and the authority to do that, I'm also gonna tell him, this paralyzed man, to get up and walk. You see, God wants us to have evidence. The pursuit of God is the ultimate pursuit of truth. God's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of our doubts. And he has provided all kinds of evidence. Would that we could see Jesus do a miracle. That would be a pretty amazing thing. But what we do have is is the prophecy of the Old Testament. What we do have are the eyewitness testimonies of the people who lived at Jesus' time. What we do have is the ultimate proof of an empty tomb. Where They put the crucified dead body of Jesus in, and three days later, it was empty, and thousands of people started to believe in the, in the work and in the teachings of Jesus Christ because he had been raised from the dead. Jesus' miracles prove his divine nature. They prove that he was who he said he was. They prove his authority over the physical realm. They prove his authority over the spiritual realm. His miracles also tell us and teach us about God's heart and the willingness of God to take on all comers, whether it's a leper who has a horrible skin disease and is an outcast by society, whether it is a political opponent and an oppressor like the Roman centurion or the paralytic. God takes all comers. He crosses cultural and political and racial barriers. He doesn't care about that stuff. He cares about your heart. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What he's saying here is, is if you want to know me, that is all it takes to begin a relationship with me. If you're here tonight and you don't know if you, what you think about Jesus, you don't know what you think about Jesus dying on the cross, there's a real simple way to boil it down. What you need to know, what you need to do is understand that you're not perfect. And most of us hopefully are saying, well, I've got that part. The problem is, is we have to understand that our imperfections, that the areas where we fall short, the things that we do that hurt ourselves and that hurt other people are part of what creates injustice and evil in this world. And that we are accountable to God for that injustice and that evil. God is a good God. He is a just God. He is perfectly righteous, and he will destroy evil. And that includes you and me. But if we ask, it will be given. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be opened. What God says that we can do is we can turn to him in faith, just like the leper, just like the centurion, just like the paralytic, and we can say, I need your help. I can't earn your forgiveness, God, but if you're offering, I would like to receive it. And that that is the first and most important step in entering into a real relationship with God in which he will come into your life and he will change your life. And no one is so far gone, no one is so broken, no one is so hostile No one has sinned so much that they're beyond the reach of the power of Jesus Christ and beyond his love. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.